0: Listening to On the Radar Conversations with Extraordinary Women in Science. I'm Julia Gray. This podcast series is brought to you by Anderson Press to celebrate the publication of I, Ada, a novel that explores the tumultuous teenage years of Ada Lovelace. It's available now. Ada Lovelace struggled with ill health for most of her life. In 1851, Eight years after her astonishing notes on Babbage's analytical engine were published, Ada began showing signs of uterine cancer. Although she tried to remain positive in outlook, she was soon confined to her bed and in great pain. She was 36 when she died on the 27th of November 1852, the same age as her father Lord Byron had been at his own death. Throughout her life Ada had been famous – Not for her exceptional mind and ability, but because she was the daughter of a celebrity. She never knew how she would later come to be remembered. And it's only in the last 50 years or so that her role in the development of computer science has really properly been understood and valued. But now there are books, films and television programmes that feature her. She is an icon of picture book biographies and a symbol of all that can be achieved with persistence, passion and curiosity. A computing language, Ada, is named after her. And every year, on the second Tuesday of October, we celebrate the achievements of women in the fields of science, technology and mathematics on Ada Lovelace Day. My guest today is Dr. Susanna Bidgood, a cell biologist, immunologist, and expert in infectious diseases. She currently works at the MRC Laboratory for Molecular Cell Biology at University College London, where she is a postdoctoral research fellow. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to start by asking you to define immunology. What is it exactly?
1: So immunology is the study of the human immune system and the human immune system is the body's ability to defend itself from uh, infectious diseases, so viruses and bacteria that want to get inside us and make us sick.
0: And what is it about immunology that excites you? Why is it so fascinating to study?
1: So the really exciting thing about doing immunology is that you're basically studying a battle. Uh, a battle between the body that is fighting off these new invaders um, a virus or bacteria Um, and uh, it's an ongoing changing thing so um, sometimes the invader the the pathogen as we call it is trying to mutate and come up with new ways of attacking and so the immune system is also continually evolving and changing to fight back so it's a very uh, ever-changing and exciting thing to be studying And also, of course, it makes a real difference to to human health and to uh, generating therapeutics that will stop people getting sick. So it feels like you're making a difference in the world. How did you
0: end up specialising in this particular area?
1: So I knew for a long time that I wanted to do biochemistry. So that's studying the chemistry behind the biology of our bodies. So, um, you know, cells are living things. But ultimately, at the basis of you and I, we have DNA, which is the instructions for making uh, Susanna or for making Julia. And uh, DNA is a chemical, and yet somehow it defines human life. And that kind of interface between a chemical that isn't living, somehow being the thing that dictates something that is living, just totally fascinated me from about the age of 16.
0: So um, your so- A-levels were dictated to by that. And so you did, I guess you did biology and chemistry? I didn't do biology. Maths. I did chemistry
1: and physics
0: um, because I'd worked out
1: you didn't need biology to do most biology courses and so I thought it'd be more useful to me to have physics because lots of the machines I use actually rely on some really important physical principles like the microscopes um, and the X-ray crystallography sets and things like that so actually having a good basis in physics is really useful for some of the techniques I use in the lab. and so that was how I kind of began into this kind of bigger field. And I basically got into immunology uh, because I went wanted a summer project in a lab um, that at that time was working on antibodies. And I just became completely fascinated with antibodies as molecules. They're like these amazing detection molecules that are floating around in our bloodstream and the space between our cells. And they are constantly changing and learning how to detect new diseases that the body's never interacted with before and um, they've been used in all sorts of different therapeutic applications Um, lots of the drugs that you and I will get prescribed in a hospital are actually based on antibodies and um, they're just incredibly cool and so from that point onwards I was a little bit hooked at studying antibodies and the immune system
0: you were smitten Um, (laughs) how how long have we known about antibodies and who coined the term
1: We've known that the body is able to protect or learn to protect itself for a long time. So the person who really did that initially was a guy called Jenna. uh, That's smallpox,
0: right? That's
1: exactly smallpox. So uh, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, he worked out that um, if a milkmaid has had cowpox, she uh, won't then go on to get smallpox. So these are two different viruses causing different diseases but they're very closely related. And so what was happening was the body was learning to detect the cowpox and how to fight back. So then when the milkmaid got smallpox, the body already knew how to fight off smallpox and the milkmaid didn't get sick. And that was hugely significant because smallpox was this horrific disease that killed 30% of people who got it. If you survived, you could be covered with these like scars from the lesions that you'd had all over your body. Uh, if it got into your eyes, it sent you blind. It can make you infertile, like it was just a mind-blowingly horrendous disease. And so Jenna's realisation of this ability to train our bodies to fight it was totally revolutionary. Um, and the thing he really did was kind of take the bold move of saying, OK, well, I'm going to actually get some cowpox out of someone's cowpox lesion and put it into someone who's had no disease. So they get cowpox and then say, can they now get smallpox? Um, and the reason that that works as a theory is because of antibodies but jenna didn't know that um, and so antibodies are these little detection molecules that uh, the body evolves during our lifetimes so every time it, the body encounters a new disease it's learning how to make antibodies to fight off that disease um, and so really jenna's discovery was the beginning of us working on antibodies uh, which kind of went on until now
0: what is the most challenging part of your work
1: the most challenging part of my work is definitely perseverance. So as a biologist, you are working with living things. And um, so I work a lot with uh, human cells that I grow in little plastic dishes in, um, in liquid that has lots of uh, nutrients in it to keep them happy. And I store them in incubators that are at body temperature and have the right level of gases. Um, but sometimes, completely unknown to me, those cells will just die because they had a bad day or maybe when i was working with them i managed to get them a little bit contaminated and they've been killed off by some yeast from the air or whatever and that can be incredibly frustrating when you've actually got a plan and often you've got a deadline that you've got to hit and um, something goes wrong and you have no idea what it is and all you can do is clean everything down get out fresh stocks of cells, and start over
0: and it must be so um, frustrating when it's it's so you're frustrating. under time
1: pressure. And then vice versa, you might have an experiment that worked perfectly, but you just have no idea why the result is what it is. And you've you tried everything you can think of, and you're like, okay, so it always did this, but I have no idea why. Right. Oh, and, gosh. you know, because it's so small, you just you, just, you can't go and have a look because it's all beyond our ability to, to look at things. So you just <laughs> you feel a bit in the dark. <laughs> but that's also the challenge and yes. the joy.
0: And, oh my gosh, I think never giving up is so important for everything. Yeah, that's and true. Just in, its own, in its own different ways, there's always that one part of your job that it's, forces you to persist. And, I'm and sure what that's about true with the writing a book. So, oh my gosh, yes, writing a book. Writing a book, definitely, you have to sit still for quite a long time, which is very hard. Um, what about the, the thing that brings you the most joy in what you do?
1: The most joy is the days when you go into the lab and you've had you've had an experiment set up and you go in and you get your result and um, sometimes it could be something really simple it might just be a line on a on a western block but you look at it and you know that your idea was right your experiment has worked and you are the first person in the world to know the answer to the question you were trying to answer and that feeling is incredible of just like wow, I've done it, Like this is something new. And it, it could be a tiny, tiny, tiny little step forward in human knowledge, but it's knowledge that you've discovered and um, there's just nothing that can take away that exciting feeling of realising you've, you've made a discovery. Did you say a Western block? I... I, a blot. Blot. <laughs> and what, is, what is that? What is a Western blot? Um, it is a way of detecting... A particular protein oh, wow. um, within a sample. So inside your cells, there are lots of building blocks that we as biochemists call proteins, um, and there's lots of different types. And so, if you just run those, uh, you can basically run them through a gel, and they will sort according to their size along that gel because um, some will move faster and some will move slower in relation to how big they are through the gel matrix. Um, but if you just did that and then you put on a dye to look at protein, you'd have a big smear because there'll be loads and loads and loads of proteins. So a western blot is a way of detecting one particular protein uh, within that big smear, and it is using an antibody.
0: (laughs) I see. So you have an antibody
1: that binds a particular protein, and you add it on to your sample, and then you have a way of of, um, seeing where that antibody is. So sometimes it's a fluorescent tag on the antibody. Um, Sometimes it's something that kicks off a chemical reaction. You add a particular chemical, and then it emits light. And then you can just take, literally, take an image with a um, photographic film to see where is
0: that band of light, and that's where your protein is. That you made that sound so gorgeous. I you see it for myself. So we're talking a lot about discoveries, um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about maybe the most intriguing discovery you've ever made in your line of work.
1: So um, this discovery was uh, when I was working for my PhD uh, at the University of Cambridge. And we have been working with a protein, one of those cell building blocks. And um, it, uh, we'd done quite a lot of work on it as a research group before. We knew that it was just inside cells and exclusively inside cells, um, but it bound onto antibodies at a very, very strongly. Now this made zero sense because um, antibodies are the detection molecules in your immune system And all the textbooks would tell you that they are found exclusively outside cells and in your bloodstream. And that's where they do their detecting. But we had this protein inside cells that we knew could bind antibodies. And so the question was why? And what we then went on to show is actually when something like a virus, uh, they need to go inside cells to replicate. They're a bit like pirates. They board inside cells and they hijack all the cell's machineries and they use it to make more viruses. Um, So when that virus comes into the cell, if it happens to have an antibody attached to it, our protein can then detect the antibody and cause the virus to be destroyed. And so it was this internal detection system for antibodies that only happens if something like a virus is carrying the antibody in, and that allows the cell to defend itself from infection. just nobody had ever noticed that this was a thing that was going on in the immune system for decades. It had always been there, but nobody had ever realised. And so it's like an extra branch of defence for ourselves.
0: And when did you discover this? Sorry. Um,
1: Uh, We studied, we discovered it, the beginning of it was in 2010. That was our first paper on it. Um, And then the the research group in Cambridge is continuing. I've moved on to work on other things, but... um...
0: But did, what... Chain of events did that discovery set in motion? Because I can imagine that finding something out like that would have would have changed a lot of the ways that people worked and thought about things.
1: Uh, Yeah, it definitely has. So I guess for the few a few years after that, we spent a lot of time kind of really trying to unpick exactly what this meant. Um, So, you know, initially we showed that the antibody being detected could cause the virus to be physically kind of destroyed by the cell's waste disposal machinery. But we then went on to show actually it also turns on lots of um like immune detectors immune sensors that then tell the rest of the body that oh there's been an infection alert alert start defending yourself um so we spent quite a lot of time on picking that um but also now it's been taken a step further by some of my former colleagues so actually um they've been able to use this discovery to actually make a tool for scientific research which allows you to very specifically get rid of a building block within a cell because if you put the right antibody in that sticks on then this pro this detector that we discovered can destroy that protein and so actually that's a really useful tool for doing cell biology experiments that previously was completely un- wasn't possible
0: do you mean a physical tool or a
1: no i mean a molecular tool i mean i guess uh like an experimental a
0: conceptual one
1: yeah yeah it means you can it's so something we do a lot in cell biology. Uh, is being like oh I know there is this gene and that is the instructions for making this protein which is the building block Um, and I want to find out what it does so often the first thing we'll do is try and take it away and see how the cell can function without it and that will give us clues into what it does and so being able to very specifically remove a building block is very useful for those kind of questions and those kind of experiments.
0: I see. It's a kind of it's a kind of detection deduction procedure. Exactly. Yeah. Now you've talked a lot about your working methods, and I'm sort of envisaging all these rather exciting eureka moments in a series of labs. But I'm guessing you haven't been in the lab very much in recent months due to lockdown. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> it must have been super frustrating. So, so basically, you just had to down tools, all kinds of tools, and go home.
1: Yeah, so our lab was shut down in mid-March, when the whole of the UK went into full lockdown. Um, Some labs, uh, so I'm based at University College London, some labs were kept open for Covid research, but all non-absolute like necessity labs were shut down. So we were all sent home, which as somebody who's used to having a very practical, moving around job was hugely frustrating. Um, but you know an important part of being a scientist is um, putting all your data together and writing it up into publications that get um, then published in scientific journals and it's something that some scientists like myself is not always that that good at getting around to doing because it's much more exciting discovering new things than putting it into a piece of writing that makes sense to other people and you put that out there in the world so in some ways it's been good it's been an enforced writing retreat um and uh, lots of us have got our, our publications put together does mean there's going to be a huge amount of scientific publications coming out in the next few months because labs have been doing this around though. the world
0: <laughs> <laughs> but i think people now like even lay the lay person is much more excited about the the concept of new scientific research and things that they can go out and maybe read or have explained to them so yeah I'm glad I'm glad glad that you were able to get your paperwork together if (laughs) if nothing else because I can also see how it must have been so frustrating to not be not be in a lab doing hands-on work and I wanted to ask you a bit about COVID-19 because of course um the concept of immunity and the word antibodies and and even viruses in general are now things that have filtered down to everyday parlance and everyone's talking about it all the time. Um, As far as I can tell, it seems like we do not yet understand very much about immunity to this virus. Is that right? Yeah, so the
1: real challenge with... Um, COVID-19 or so COVID-19 is the disease it's caused by a virus called SARS-CoV-2 the real challenge about this virus is that it's new and we haven't had it in the in the human in humans before and so we know relatively little about it and actually you know it might feel like this has been going on for months um, and it has but in scientific terms um, it's very new and trying to work out what's going on. So when it comes to immunity, uh, we are to some extent taking our lead from other coronaviruses. So other viruses in the same family that we know stuff about. Like MERS and SARS. Like, exactly, like MERS and SARS. They're kind of the two that are, are really, well, are deadly for humans or can be. There are lots of other coronaviruses that just cause the common cold that yeah. all of us have had and they've all gone away again and none of us have thought about it. Um, And so from all those studies of those viruses, what we know is that um, you can get a a protective immune response. So you get antibodies. um, And that's what people are detecting in those antibody tests. And that tells you, oh, yes, you've had the virus. Your body has trained some antibodies to detect it. And we can now, in our special test, determine that you do have those antibodies. So you probably had the virus and you're probably protected against it. But what's unclear is how long that protection is going to last for, and that's the really key question that everyone's been talking about in the media. Um, we would expect it to last for three to six months as a minimum, um, but whether it, we're gonna get long-lasting immunity on the scale of years It remains to be seen, actually, because we haven't had this virus for years. We just have no idea. Yeah,
0: we need (laughs) need time in order to um, accrue the data, I'm assuming, to study people and lots of data sets all over the world. We know that COVID-19, or we're pretty sure that this is a bat pathogen. Um, I guess we can't be 100% sure of anything, but that's certainly the, the link that's been made. Why are bat pathogens in particular so dangerous for humans? So um,
1: this virus has come out of bats, it's thought. Um, so originally it was viruses in bats, and it has evolved in a way that it could also then infect humans, which is how it's got into the human population. Um, and actually, the thing that's become increasingly we've become increasingly aware of uh, as scientists is that a lot of these emerging new viruses that pop into the human population. Many of them have come from bats, and especially with the nastier ones. So Ebola also had its reservoir on bats as it's SARS-1. Um, and so there's been a you know a line of interest in the field of why is that the case? And um, the feeling, well, the research has been done so far, people um, think that actually the bat immune system, the human immune system are really quite similar, but it feels like the bat one is just a lot more powerful. It's more potent. And so um, it can actually fight off these diseases and the bats don't really get sick. But when the same virus comes into humans, it actually makes us really sick. Um, and so actually it means we need to just be a much higher alert level at not letting these bat uh, reservoir
0: viruses coming into, come into human the population. And how can we, how can we do that? Uh, is it a question of just not being super careful when you go into a bat cave or (laughs) is there there some other form form of protection or is is this an animal is this an environmental concern
1: um there's i mean there are some very simple ways that you can do it in that um and this this is true in the whole of our lives of just actually being really um careful about our hygiene so you've been Mm -hmm. out and about you wash your hands when wash you get home. Hands. Um <laughs> <laughs> I know the government's been telling us to wash our hands all the time, but actually it's a really simple measure that makes a huge difference. Um, you know, in the UK, uh, lots of us aren't living in close proximity to the kinds of bats that would be, could be carrying vi- these viruses. Um, and so it's, it's a matter of, you know, in Ebola, the Ebola outbreak, for example, it's thought that the first case came from some, a little boy who was playing around a tree, a hollow tree, that the bats were living in. And so, you know, children, they're playing, they get everything all over their hands, they touch their faces. Actually, you know, if there's an Ebola in some of the bat feces and he then touched his face, that's how he picked it up. And then because this particular virus had had evolved so it could transmit between humans, it then started spreading amongst the village. And that's thought how the outbreak began. Um, So to some extent, yes, you know, people being aware that they need to stay away from particular areas it might be more dangerous is something to be considered um as an international community i think it's a lot about surveillance and so being aware of you know if there are reports within a particular medical hospital oh we've had all these new cases of pneumonia Mm. and it doesn't look like anything we've known before actually we take that really seriously and think about isolating you know that area and not letting it transmit further um
0: So it needs to raise, raise flags basically, and it's a communications issue.
1: Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing about COVID-19 is, as we all know, for some people, especially the elderly, it can be very bad, but some people get it asymptomatically. And actually that's why this virus had a chance of going pandemic and succeeded, Mm. because it doesn't make everybody super ill. And so there are people wandering around who don't know that they have it, but they are then transmitting it to other people. Um, as in comparison SARS-1 made people really ill and so you could tell if people had it or not much more easily and And hence why there
0: weren't so many deaths right SARS-1 I think
1: yeah it was easy to contain because it was easier to work out who had it and stop them
0: going to see anyone else and then it didn't spread now Susanna I only have a couple more questions to ask you okay Is there a particular person who's had a very special influence on your career or who has shaped um, your pathway or inspired you to do what you do?
1: Um, I think one person who had a huge uh, impact on my choice of career was actually my father. Um, So my dad, he also did sciences at university, did the same degree as I did. Uh, He didn't end up being a scientist, but he... uh, just had the most curious mind of anybody I'd ever met. He just was interested in everything. And sometimes as a child, it was infuriating because you go to a museum and he would want to know how everything works and it would take flipping hours. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in in most areas of life, it was just wonderful because uh, he really was fascinated and he was interested and, you know, you go for a walk in the woods and he would tell you about the trees and the plants or the birds or whatever we were seeing. And he also had a brain like a sponge, which unfortunately I did not inherit. Um, so he also just retained all these facts and stuff that he'd learned and then he could share them with you. And so that kind of uh, infectious curiosity, I think, was um, was really infectious and kind of made me want to explore the world and understand the world more. Um, so I think he was a big uh early impact on my desire to go
0: off and be a research scientist and explore and understand more about the world that is lovely and I love that you've mentioned curiosity because you also mentioned perseverance if you had to pick one third value or quality that you think it's important to possess to do what you do what would it be oh that's really difficult um I was wondering as you were talking about adaptability actually when you um... yeah
1: nice I think, I think adaptability uh, is a really important uh, quality to have as a scientist. And I think um, because you're basically coming up with an idea of how you think the world might be working and then you design an experiment to test that. And sometimes the answer will just be no, you were wrong. And yeah. so you've then got to go back and rethink and change your ideas or ch- adjust your experiment and be totally happy with being led by the research result, rather than getting too stuck in like, oh, well, this is my idea and it must be right. And that is a pitfall that scientists can fall into, being like, yeah. but I'm sure my idea is right. Sometimes it just isn't. And you need to be humble enough to be yeah. like, no, I'm going to change and move on and we're going to work out what is really true. <laughs> um, and lastly, what are you going to do next? What am I going to do next? So um, I... So in the short term I'm actually going to I've been working on pox viruses so on the virus like smallpox that Jenna did his discovery on I've been working on those and looking at how they try and stop the immune system detecting them um, and I'm actually going to be going back now to work back on antibodies um, working at antibodies that protect people against HIV um, So this is a very interesting field in that uh, there isn't a vaccine against like HIV so it's been a big, uh, quest to try and work out how we could generate in people an immune response that would protect them against HIV. And so this, this uh, project would just be another little stepping stone in understanding <laughs> antibody response to HIV infection, uh, which hopefully will take us one day towards having a really effective uh, therapeutic against HIV.
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. And thank you so much, Dr. Susanna Bedgood, for coming to chat to us today.
1: Thank you. It's been great to speak to you.
0: In this last extract from iAda, Ada Ada is in the sleepy spa town of Buxton. With not much to do apart from learning the harp, she has offered to tutor two little girls, Livy and Bella Gosford, in mathematics. The semi-somnolent Buxton days acquire shape and purpose, and I realise that I'm quite content. Arithmetic lessons with Bella and Livy form a pleasant portion of each morning before my own lesson on the harp with Miss Smith. It's an arrangement that suits everyone, and although it is hard to be consistently patient with the girls and with myself, I find that with practice I am able to be far more patient than I have ever been before. I listen to Livy and Bella's pretty lisping voices as they recite their multiplication tables. I work out which sums and operations each girl finds particularly hard and make a point of helping with those problems especially. I teach them to use a ruler properly. General William Pasley first wrote this book to help engineers, I explained to them as I opened that Good Soldiers treatise, practical geometry method. Just think, Livy and Bella, if you study hard, you could use your knowledge to build bridges or railways or even in warfare. "'Bella wrinkles her freckled nose. "'Ada, how could you suggest that? "'Why would we want to do any of those things?' "'Chimes in Livy. "'Well, I counter, why wouldn't you?' "'More nose-wrinkling and feminine disgust. "'I can see that they are, in spite of their protestations, "'rather amused that I have suggested these outrageous possibilities. "'Because we're girls!' they chorus. "'I am only teasing them.' But the thought lingers long after the lesson is over. Why should we women limit ourselves simply because of our sex? Why should we say, this is not for us, nor this, nor this, when there are so many things that could be done? If Jacquard had been brought up to believe that he was not capable of designing a loom that would revolutionise the factory system, if Stevenson had never dared to dream of steam engines, If Babbage hadn't broken things apart under the benevolent eye of his mother to see how they worked, then none of those inventions would exist today. The thought sparks oddities in my Ada brain. All the magical potential that would have gone to waste, and all the magical potential that must surely be lost every day, because little girls like Bella and Livy Gosford do not believe that a bridge would be theirs to build." You've been listening to On the Radar Conversations with Extraordinary Women in Science. On the Radar was produced by Jonathan Moore and me, Julia Grey, and mixed and edited by Jonathan Moore. With special thanks to Paul Black, Rob Farimond, Chloe Sacker, Louise Lament, Mara Alperin, and today's guest, Doctor Susanna Bidgood. Music by Second Person. I Ada is published by Anderson Press and available wherever you buy your books.